Heavenly Father, um, I thank you so much for this day. It's been a joy to be here, to be worshiping you. It's my prayer that that worship is rising up as sweet incense to you. Um, coming before you saying, please turn our attention now to the study of your word. Uh, as your servant, I'm coming before you saying, please anoint me. Please use me, Father, to deliver the message that you have for all of us. Lord, and it's my prayer that these words are your words. And if I say anything that is not from you, I pray that it would fall away. Lord, but that which is from you, uh, cause it to take anchor in our hearts, to uh, course through our, our bloodstream so that we are changed by what it is that you have for us in your precious words. So uh, use this time to bring yourself glory and use this time to edify your church here at Harvest. In Jesus' name, amen. A very important factor to happiness is desire. I want you to think about that with me for just a minute. A healthy appetite is essential to the enjoyment of food. If we don't have an appetite, the very sight of food can actually make us sick. The desire for knowledge can make education a wonderful and exhilarating experience, whereas if there is no desire for knowledge, education then becomes a painful drudgery. Love for another can be heaven on earth. But if there's no interest in or desire for the person proclaiming or advancing that love, it can become absolutely repulsive. So desire for something is critical to finding happiness and fulfillment in it. And it's really no different for our relationship with God. If we truly desire him to know him and to love him and to serve him, we will find great joy in him. However, if we don't truly desire God, if following him is something that we do merely out of duty, then we won't find happiness or joy in him. In fact, living out the Christian life under those conditions will become more and more difficult, demanding, and draining with the passing of time. So with that, let's take a look at the fourth beatitude. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read together verses 1, 2, and 6. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went, went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, please skip to verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, I think most Christians will not have a problem with Jesus linking happiness with desire in the first part of this beatitude, where he said, blessed, and if you remember the word from the last few weeks. It's makarios, which means deeply happy. Blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst, that is, those who desire. But some may balk at the object of that desire in the second part of the Beatitude, where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that's because that word righteousness is to some 
an arduous and ominous word. That is, to those who try to bundle up the demands of righteousness into a little set of do's and don'ts, believing that by obeying rules, one becomes righteous. It was that way with the Pharisees, whose way to righteousness was through such things as keeping the Sabbath, tithing and fasting, following temple protocol, and ensuring that the width of their phylacteries and the length of their fringes were spot on. The Pharisees, whom, by the way, Jesus referred to this way as blind guides, fools, snakes, vipers, and hypocritical, put that in your back pocket, believed that if they crossed all their T's and they dotted all of their I's, they would be righteous. What a burdensome, not to mention impossible, way to live the Christian life. And that's because no one can consistently do that. No wonder some might balk at the idea of righteousness being the object of our deepest desire. But that, first of all, is not what Jesus meant when he talked about righteousness. He's not saying here, nor does he say anywhere else in the Bible, that our righteousness comes out of our ability to follow rules. As a matter of fact, he said just the opposite. He said that our ability to follow rules or to be obedient comes out of our righteousness. So when Jesus talked about being righteous, he was not talking about our outward compliance. Rather, he was talking about our inner character, about our developing Christ-likeness. And becoming like Christ is something we simply cannot do for ourselves. It's something only God can do for us. Now, it does require our cooperation and our obedience, yes, of course, but ultimately, it's a work of God in our lives. And I think it's very important that we understand that. Furthermore, Jesus did not say, blessed are the righteous, did he? That is, blessed are those whom God has finished his work in, whom he has completely sanctified. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is, those who desire righteousness, those who long after developing a Christ-like character, and who do so, and I believe this is implicit in Jesus' word choice here, in a deeply passionate, all-consuming way, which is the short answer to the question, how hungry and thirsty are we to be in our pursuit of righteousness? Let me explain. Bible scholar William Barclay once very wisely said, words do not exist in isolation, meaning that they are conditioned by the background of those who speak them as well as to whom they are spoken to, that is, by their context. That said, in this affluent society that we live in, it is next to impossible for us to truly know anything about real hunger and about real thirst. Our context just doesn't allow for it. However, those living where and when Jesus lived while he was on this earth did know about these things. It was a part of their context. An average first century working person was never far from the borderline of real hunger and even at times of starvation. And having a reliable water supply in that time and place 
was a matter of life and death. So you see the hunger that Jesus speaks of in this beatitude, and this is my point, is not the kind that can be satisfied by a snicker bar. And the thirst he talks about is not the kind that can be quenched by a quick stop off at the water cooler. It's the hunger of one who is starving, and it's the thirst of one who will die unless he drinks. Let me illustrate this point. Upon hearing over and over again that he had to really want to be a rescue swimmer in order to become one, a young Coast Guard trainee, while in the training pool with one of his instructors, asked how he would know whether this was something he wanted badly enough or not. So the instructor swam over to the trainee and proceeded to push his head underwater and hold it there. In desperation, the young man thrashed and, and fought, and eventually he freed himself, coming quickly to the surface, gasping for breath. After making sure that the trainee was okay, the instructor asked him this question. When you were underwater, what did you desire most? Air, said the man. Then the re instructor replied this way. When you want to be a rescue swimmer, as much as you wanted that air, then you know that you wanted it badly enough. Those who truly hunger and thirst for righteousness want to be like Christ in the same way that that Coast Guard trainee wanted air. That's the kind of hunger and thirst that Jesus was talking about in this beatitude. All right, so we now know what Jesus was referring to when, with his use of the word righteousness, he was talking about inner character as opposed to outer compliance, about our developing Christ-likeness as opposed to mere rule-following. And we know what kind of hunger and thirst that he was talking about as well. Passionate as opposed to passing. A search for sustenance, not merely for a snack. The only question that remains is why are those who desire to become like Christ, as if their life depended upon it, deeply happy. In other words, why is it true that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are happy or blessed because their desire for righteousness, unlike all worldly desires, is guaranteed to achieve its object. Or as Jesus said it in the last part of the Beatitude, for they will be filled, or the ESV translates that, they shall be satisfied. And I like that one a lot better. Our basic carnal, that is worldly desires, are very few in number. In fact, they can be counted on one hand with a digit to spare. Pleasure, fame, money, power. See, I got one left. And what these four carnal desires all have in common is that they're all at the world's mercy. For example, if what trips your trigger is to have a good time, that is, if your fundamental desire is pleasure, the world can deny you, say, the means to do so, and just like that, your desire is thwarted. If your deal is to gain fame, without even a second thought, the world can pass you by and forget you and even bury your name under the dust heap of oblivion. 
if your deepest desire is to make a lot of money. The world can bring on a depression or a severe inflation and not only fail to make you rich, but actually make you exceedingly poor. And if your game is power, the world in a heartbeat can snatch away your scepter. And just like Napoleon, you'll find yourself on your own St. Helena, exiled to pine away without your power. But when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, when you make Christ's likeness the end and the aim of your existence, you're not at the world's mercy. And nothing can do deprive you of the fulfillment of that particular desire. As a matter of fact, the very worst that the world can dish out will not only fail to de deprive you of your desire for righteousness, it can actually help to deliver it. For example, problems, rather than hang us up, can actually make us more patient and thus more like Christ. Poverty, rather than bring us down, can actually make us more dependent on God, and thus more like Christ. And pain, rather than take us out, can actually make us more understanding and sympathetic, and thus, say it with me, more like Christ. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in the last part of Romans 8. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The desire for righteousness is the only desire on this earth that is guaranteed to achieve its object. And it's the only desire on this earth that will truly satisfy us. Now, the desire for worldly things can produce a measure of enjoyment, of course, and thus why they tempt us, but they're always temporary, and they're always less than satisfying. Not only does the desire for righteousness satisfy, it does so continuously. Our satisfaction in hungering and thirsting for righteousness never becomes satiated. It never gets fed up, and it never gets stuffed. You know, like when you eat so much turkey on Thanksgiving Day that you don't think you'll ever eat again for the rest of your life? We will never completely catch up with Christ. Strive as hard as we might, we will never arrive. Yet, all the while, our striving is arriving. In fact, it's that sense that Christ is always out ahead of us that makes him so appealing, and quite honestly, it's what makes him so satisfying. Paul said it like this in Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Jesus Christ. Do you hear the joy 
and the sense of anticipation and the sense of satisfaction in Paul's words, even though, as he admitted, he had not yet arrived. A joy and a sense of anticipation and satisfaction that unfortunately is lacking among many Christians today, especially Christians in America. Why is that? Why is it lacking? Well, I see two reasons which really are two sides of the same coin. I think the first reason why many Christians are missing the fullness of this particular blessing is because of their desires. And I'm talking here about their fundamental, passionate, hunger and thirst type desires. Those things that really, truly motivate them are sadly no different than they are for the world. What too many Christians really want out of life, if they're to be honest, what they are really hungry for falls in one or more of the four categories I listed earlier. Pleasure, fame, money, and or power. In much the same way that the world does, those believers also want more than anything just to be rich, to strike oil or to win the lottery so that they will never again have a financial need or want. Or they want to be famous, to have the rest of the world fawn over them and clamor for their autographs and to have their names become household words. Or they want to be powerful, to have people listen when they speak, kind of like E.F. Hutton. Remember those old commercials? When when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. And I do realize that I've dated myself badly with the use of that reference. They want, above all things, to have a good time. They want to do the things that bring them pleasure and to avoid the things that do not. And when you think about it, how odd. How odd for Christians to have the same desires that those of the world have, first of all, because they should know better as followers of Jesus Christ, but also, and I think more strikingly, because of the poor track record that the world has in pursuing those desires. The world has shown us time and time again that pleasure, fame, money, and or power do not satisfy. I'm going to read you a short snippet of a long list of names. And what I want you to do as you listen is to be thinking about what these people have in common other than the fact that they're rich, famous, powerful, or all of the above, okay? First name. Prince Alfred of Edinburgh, a member of the British royal family. Edwin Armstrong, American inventor of FM radio. Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt. Kurt Cobain, a member of the American rock band Nirvana. Ernest Hemingway, famous American writer and journalist. Brian Keith, American actor and star of the TV series Family Affair. Robert M. McLean, mayor of Baltimore. Freddie Prinze, American actor and comedian. Junior Seau, NFL All-Pro player. And Hervé Villachez, the actor known for his role as Tattoo on the TV series Fantasy Island. He was the plain, the plain guy. So what do all those people have in common other than the fact that they're rich, famous, and or powerful? Anybody want, if you know, shout it out. Absolutely right. They all took their own lives. And, as I alluded to earlier, 
they're a very small representation of a very large group of rich, famous, and powerful people who've done the same thing. Now, if pleasure, fame, money, and power satisfied, these people would not have taken their own lives. They had it all. But those things don't satisfy. Only Christ satisfies. The second reason I think many Christians are missing the fullness of this blessing mentioned in this beatitude, and as I said before, this is really just the other side of the same coin, is because they don't passionately pursue Christ-likeness. They don't chase after holiness with any sort of fervor. Now, I'm not really sure what causes what here. In other words, I don't know for sure if they're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness causes them to hunger and thirst for carnal things, or if their desire for carnal things impedes their desire for Christ-likeness. However, I suspect that it's a little of each. They probably are happening simultaneously. Many Christians too often live their lives as if their faith is an add-on as opposed to being the central component of their lives, as icing as opposed to the cake. To use a car as an analogy, for instance, they too often view their faith as an option or an accessory, as the sunroof or the seat warmer or the backup camera, as something that merely adorns, rather than seeing it as the engine and transmission, as what drives them. And when they do that, when they relegate their faith to a secondary position in their lives, they simply not have the right heart for Christ. And becoming like Christ will not be a passion for them. In fact, their faith will become that difficult, demanding, and draining experience I mentioned earlier. It will sadly become nothing more than dry religion. It's only when we view and accept our Christian faith, that is, our relationship with God through Christ is that which is absolutely central to our lives as our engine and transmission, as what drives us, that we will hunger and thirst for righteousness or for Christ-likeness as an engine would gasoline and not for the carnal things of this world. Harvest. Let's not be those joyless Christians, all right? Let's not fall for the lie perpetuated by this world and by the evil one that pleasure, fame, money, and or power will satisfy. They will not satisfy. At best, they will leave us wanting, and at worst, our desire for and pursuit of them will destroy us. Rather, let us say with sincere and enthusiastic agreement with the Apostle Paul from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, I count everything, all of the world's trappings as loss because of, or the New American Standard Bible here says, in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The original word for rubbish here is a great word, scubalon. Scubalon, what, what scubalon means is any refuse. 
such as the excrement of animals, off-scourings, or dregs, and which is translated, by the way, in the message translation as dog dung. I like that. I think it fits. I count them as rubbish, as scubalon, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, Pharisees, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Harvest, let's leave the things of the world to the world. Let's make Christ the central and most important component of our lives and that which makes everything else appear as, you want to try to say it with me? Scubalon. Rather than merely jog, let's run hard after Christ as we pursue him in the scriptures. And rather than quickly glance, let's gaze intensely at his face when we come before him in prayer. And rather than just dabble, let's imitate Jesus with deep, heartfelt passion that is with everything that we have got. As a church body, let's desire Christ and becoming like Christ as if our lives depended on it, because they do. Real, abundant life that Jesus came that we might experience depends on our becoming more and more and more like Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who desire Christ above all things and who desire more than air itself to become more like him. For they will be filled. They will be satisfied. They will realize the object of their desire and it will fill them to overflowing with unspeakable peace, joy, and contentment. Worship team, will you join me, please? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for this, this challenge given to us in your word to really hunger and thirst for that righteousness you speak of, for holiness. Your word says, be holy because I am holy. Lord, we're lied to daily about where satisfaction comes from. But we know beyond a shadow of a doubt it comes from nothing that this world has to offer. It comes only in our relationship, our growing relationship with Christ and our becoming like Christ as we pursue righteousness. Father, we don't want to be mere rule followers. We want to be people with a, a deep and intimate relationship with you that by virtue of the fact that it, it, it grows within us causes us to be more obedient. Righteousness first, obedience second. Oh, Father, have your way in us. I pray that this word would find its way into the deepest recesses of our being, that we might, oh, Lord, we might change. We might run hard after you, Jesus. We might gaze intensely at you as we come before you in our prayer times. We might run hard after you as we pursue you in the scriptures. And we imitate you with everything that we've got with your help, the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we